Hello everyone and welcome to the final episode of season three of Pull Quotes. I'm Ashley Fraser, Chief Podcast Editor. And I'm Tanya Sirik, Pull Quotes Podcast Producer. As we gear up to launch the print issue of the Rise and Review of Journalism, we're taking a look back at our time on this masthead by highlighting some of the amazing feature stories our writers have worked hard on all year. Getting a magazine to print wasn't exactly easy this year, to say the least, and we'll touch on that in a bit. But first, we want to talk a bit about the RRJ. Our magazine has looked at issues within Canadian journalism for 36 years. Over the years, it has evolved to provide more online content with a dedicated editorial team, and in the past three years, it has also had a podcast production team. The RRJ is an unusual mix of a professional production that is produced through a course for final year undergrad and grad journalism students at Ryerson University. We make up the masthead, but we're guided by a professional team of handling editors, art directors, fact checkers, and copy editors as we build the year's issue. For many of us, it's the first time we've tackled a full-length feature or fact-checked a story. Typically, this work happens in the RRJ newsroom, building in intensity as the magazine begins to take shape. Of course, everything changed the week of March 16th as our course went online. This meant we'd have to find a new way to produce the magazine. Stories still had to be fact-checked, copy-edited and laid out. Not only were we unable to make use of the resources in our newsroom, but we had to find a way to make a magazine without actually being together and bouncing ideas off of each other face-to-face. This week, we would have also been hosting our launch party, but like many of you, we are sitting in our bedrooms and doing a digital cheers for our whole team, all of whom are graduating with master's and bachelor's degrees in journalism this summer. The most challenging shift, perhaps, has been one for our business team, tasked with planning an exciting launch party to celebrate the publication of the Spring 2020 issue. How do you pivot a launch event that is meant to market your hard work and put it out for the world to see? Let's ask managing business and audience engagement editors Sean Young and Sarah Haggett-Smith how they're making do. Hey, guys. Hi, guys. Hi. So, Sean, tell us a bit about the original plan for the launch party. So usually the launch is a time for student journalists and professional journalists out in the field, uh, like our sources that we've talked to over the years, to really get to know each other, uh, to promote the magazine, to make connections, uh, to really just mingle, have some drinks, have some food, and really celebrate the work that went into the entire research of the magazine and the actual construction of the magazine over the year. So what we were trying to do with the launch was kind of switch things up a little bit this year, uh, allow a kind of a bigger focus on each of the individual features. So we were kind of going for what we were jokingly calling a science fair idea. So basically, everybody would have kind of their own setups, their own tables, and you'd kind of move around the room talking to each featured writer in the magazine about their individual features. So for mine, I've been writing about Extra, which is a queer publication based out of Toronto. And Basically, you'd be talking to me about um, kind of the research that I put into uncovering the story, uh, kind of pitching the story, and finding the sources, the research that actually went into it, and then kind of looking into the historic uh, pieces or kind of behind the scenes things that I might bring in, like heritage uh, copies of Extra, older copies of The Body Politic, which is the precursor to the magazine. So basically kind of behind the scenes looks at the creation of the magazine itself. So obviously that didn't uh, quite happen the way we wanted, but we've kept some of those same ideals in this new launch format. And obviously there was some disappointment that came from cancelling the event. Um, Sara, could you tell us what the plan is now? 
We're trying to bring as much as we can from our original launch to social media platforms. We toyed with the idea of maybe moving the launch party to Zoom, but felt that letting people interact uh, with an online launch on their own schedule instead of at a set time would be more fun and engaging. So we're going to be using Instagram posts and stories to explore those behind the scenes contents of our features that Sean was talking about through content like photographs taken during the research process or live Q&As with our writers exploring further into what it takes to write a feature. And of course, we will be unveiling our magazine cover online once the magazine is available to purchase. Ah, that's awesome. And, and how are you guys feeling? Spirits are definitely high and the team has really come together to try and workshop new ideas and find fun, engaging ways to do this while we're all in our own homes. So it's been really great working with everyone to try and bring this together still and celebrate this magazine launch. We've been able to kind of switch things up. I think the focus on the social media aspects of the launch have kind of made us a little bit more creative. I think the launch has kind of fallen into a certain pattern, a certain box over the past couple of years. And so allowing us to switch it up through a different format, allowing us to put a little emphasis on social media and the new platforms that we have available to us kind of allows for a little bit more creativity. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, guys. I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys come up with and seeing little mini reveals of everything. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. But what is a magazine without its editor-in-chief? We've put our blood, sweat, and tears into the RRJ for the past eight months, and we couldn't do it without Katria Bolger's leadership. On the Hangout call now is Katria and Irby Khan, print managing editor. They're joined by Mitchell Konsky, our print production editor. Welcome all. How are we today? Hi. Good, all things considering. Hey, we're good. So obviously on March 20th, Ryerson officially announced that all courses were to be completed online. Meanwhile, our instructors at the RJ were ahead of the curve. So all of you, how did you feel when you heard the news? What were your thoughts? I was very um, anxious as to how we'd work remotely. That was pretty much like the first thought because I remembered that I was in the RJ office with Katria on um, the Friday that it was announced, but we actually... As, um, as a magazine, we decided to go uh, online before uh, Ryerson itself announced that we'd go online. But yeah, I was quite anxious as to how that would all work out. Yeah, there's just so much teamwork that goes into the ROJ and so many so many moving parts that all, all depend on each other. So I think, you know, from the outset, there was a little bit of nervousness in terms of how, how we would transition. But I, I would say the team has been pretty, uh, pretty strong at transitioning. And it's been it's been pretty seamless overall. I also remember we were in the fact checking process. And that's a very in person collaborative process. It's very much printing pages and looking at binders and and being together. So that was it was a difficult transition to having to go from some pieces that were already almost done being fact checked to some pieces that weren't even done their fact checking package, which is an essential part of the process. I remember it being really nerve-wracking. And Mitch, you're the print production editor. How did you get to the di- difficult task of making this magazine through this online process? What was? How did you figure it out? <laughs> well, the, the most difficult part was the fact that we weren't together, so I didn't know everyone's individual schedules. So, I mean, the biggest part was just messaging everyone and trying to shepherd the process as much as possible. The print team had regular meetings and everyone really stepped up to the plate towards the end. I remember last year we were told that print production always towards the end, there's always curveballs that are thrown at us, but we didn't know the extent that it would be this year. And I think everyone was pretty, pretty great at showing up and doing what needed to be done. So now let's get to the magazine itself. Irby, can you tell us how our magazine is broken down? 
So the way we decided to break down the uh, magazine in our print team was with the past and future of journalism. And we were thinking about this because we're entering a new decade. So we're entering, you know, the 2020s. And the future of journalism is as precarious and different from what we are leaving behind and there's new frontiers to be had but uh yeah so we decided with the past and future journalism it's not a set in stone thing but we kind of decided that we would include stories that looked to the past of journalism so innovation and things like that and then to the future of journalism so we have uh stories on ai how to unplug for um in, for your mental health and things like that And Katria, we've seen more news organizations shutting down now than ever before. And in many ways, the journalism industry is really in the spotlight right now. As you started to write your editors know, what were some of the ideas that came to you about journalism and our magazine? Mm -hmm. So as I set out to write my editor's note, I'd say I tried to build off the themes, the themes that are already inside the book and some of the themes that Arby has already um, articulated in her answer. And I kind of framed it around this question of what is the path ahead for journalism. I think so many of us feel so uncertain at the end of our degrees about how we might stake out our futures in this industry. And it's funny that now this this uncertainty is kind of registering with us collectively. But, but you're right, there is so much bleakness <laughs> around this industry. And I think in this issue, we wanted to tackle that issue constructively uh, by looking at things like rebranding, evolution, um, new directions and practices for journalism. And I think that a lot of the pieces in that book, in our book, ultimately do speak to that and do show um, signs of hope, promise, innovation. I think that's something that our our book has really spoken to. And have you seen the RRJ evolve over the past three weeks? Yes, uh, we've gone uh, entirely online. We're working remotely. We're convening, you know, very similarly to how we are now, which is in hangout meetings, Zoom. Good to see everyone in their home spaces <laughs> with their parents and their pets. But like I said, I think it's um, it's worked. Um, we're still very much in touch with each other and communicating pretty much constantly. And and you bring up so many great points there, Katria, about looking to the future of journalism, the hopeful side of things, not all the bleakness. And one of our senior digital editors, Hannah Alberger, tackled the daunting topic of precarity in journalism in her piece called Sheer Determination. So we actually have a little clip that we wanted to play that Hannah recorded for us. This romanticization was the bait that kept Nasser Ahmed swimming in CBC's casual pool for six years. Working at CBC, or any other journalism job for that matter, isn't just a job, it's a romantic attachment, says Ahmed, a former casual employee at CBC Sports. It's a dream animated in real life, and there is nothing you wouldn't do to jeopardize that as a casual employee. My story is about the rise of temporary journalism jobs in Canada and the precarity that comes alongside them. In my interviews, I kept on hearing people say that their careers were like lovers or like bad lovers. As their stories developed, I realized that this love affair is a big contributing factor that perpetuates precarity. What I'm trying to do is synthesize what exactly here is going on, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of Why are we here and what can we do while we're here? Journalists like myself are desperate to contribute to this historical moment that we're living in. 
it's this weird hybrid. It's you have to contribute. You feel like there's this greater good no matter how difficult it is. It's this badge of honor that we are so dedicated to. And and I don't mean that in a I just mean to say that despite these greater challenges that everyone is aware of, this passion, this dedication, this part of your identity is what keeps us hooked. Sadly, my story is more relevant now than ever. Amidst everything that's been going on, there's been also a surge of layoffs. The first newspaper I ever worked at closed. I was shattered. I was heartbroken. I know now what so many of the journalists that I've spoken to feel like. The good thing that has come out of this is that we all know this. And in many ways, it's brought us together in, you know, income transparency and creating freelance unions that are completely dedicated to solidifying, you know, contracts that are fair and ensuring that journalists are even if you work at home by yourself and you're not obligated to one employer, you have every right to have healthcare and these really, really basic necessities that often are not deemed as basic. So the irony of all this is that I am graduating this month or, well, I was supposed to be graduating this month, but it's been postponed to the fall. But anyways, I will myself be joining this growing pool of freelancers and it seems every day that anything can happen. Things are constantly changing the news. Because this cultural moment is so pivotal, the number of people who want to contribute to it is rising too. And I hope that camaraderie will rise along with it. So that's a little bit about my piece. I think that it's an important piece that's missing right now in our industry there's a lot of talk of despair but we also need to talk about why we're all here so enjoy love that there's a lot of talk of despair but we also have to talk about why we're all here hannah spoke about the badge of honor and this this desperateness to contribute to this historical moment and i i totally understand that i think as journalists we have this impulse we have this desire to to document what's going on and i think when we're not able to do that it's almost like we feel we feel completely insignificant so i think that hannah's piece does an amazing job of highlighting that that feeling and what it means for all of us yeah i think hannah has you know pieced together so many of the competing feelings we feel at any given point in our in our careers as journalists which is we we love the rush we love how exhilarating and rewarding the work can be but it can also be incredibly tough and increasingly it, it looks like in uh, you know in t- kind of untenable work but i think she really gets to the core of what drives a lot of us which is just this this romance you know the the thrill of discovering and learning constantly and um it's it's good to have that reminder Definitely. And and many journalists, obviously, they might be struggling right now. Many have faced issues getting permanent roles in journalism, which I know Hannah's piece touches on. But also some have opted for Plan B, which is another story that was tackled by our copy editor, Daniel McIntosh. On a broader scale, some magazines are rebranding themselves to remain relevant. Others are starting to collaborate with one another to broaden their journalistic scope. 
Irby, could you tell us more about that theme for the magazine? So rebranding is about how us, for example, like Broadview and Extra and the Narwhal, how they're moving forward into the future from what they were in the past, how these magazines and broadcasters are changing to remain relevant in a changing time of journalism. And another theme which seems to have made its way into the news a lot recently and It was also on our last podcast with Mitch, is the role of AI within journalism. So Mitch, do you want to tell us a little bit about the intersection of technology and journalism and how that's sort of played out in the magazine this year? Yeah, so both mine and Lucas' pieces talk about something called natural language processing. And that can be anything in terms of the manipulation, the interpretation, um, or the formulation of prose, of language. We talked about my piece, which was automated text generation, Lucas's piece is going to make you reevaluate the transcription services you're using for your interviews. And with the rise of Zoom bombing, as people keep up with work from home, we caught up with Lucas Lee, who is not only one of our chiefs of research, but he has also quickly become the RRJ's resident privacy officer. Here's what he had to say about his piece called Who's Listening and the world of journalists using third-party software in our current climate. The moral duty of journalists is to protect the unspoken contract between source and reporter. In return for sharing the story, sources are promised fair representation and protection of their information. To voluntarily grant access to this information to third-party companies is an abdication of this promise. My story is really about the moral duty we have as journalists to protect the information of our sources and how difficult it is for us to do that with all the tools we have at our disposal. You know, using things like Google Drive or Skype means that we're voluntarily granting companies like Google and Microsoft access to our data. Specifically, my piece takes a focus on transcription services and how journalists have now begun uploading their interviews to these services to get a full transcription within minutes. My story sort of challenges the ethics of doing that. I became interested in privacy issues really when the Snowden revelations came out. It was mind-boggling how much information and data they had. It got me thinking, every time we upload a photo to Facebook or like we type in a sentence to a Google Doc, we're voluntarily disclosing our data and then losing control of it. The same thing applies to journalists, except we have an even greater reason to protect our information. Imagine broadcasting a conversation you have with a friend all over the internet and to strangers around the world. You'd be violating their trust. You're sort of like breaking a social contract. And that social contract is even more important when you're talking to a source. When a source is speaking to you, the privacy of their information should be assumed because they're trusting you. By using these services, you're sort of abdicating that trust. Zoom can certainly be a useful tool for journalists. Um, Journalists can conduct interviews, they can create live transcripts with it, they can have conversations with their editors. But we also know that Zoom has some serious security flaws. They said that they do end-to-end encryption of their video calls, but then they actually don't. You know, trolls are finding ways to enter random calls. These are really big flaws in their security and reasons that we should never use Zoom. And I think it's important to take the lessons that we've learned from Zoom and apply them to every service we use. 
there's no way for us to know that any company is being honest with the policies that they say they have and we have no way of knowing what companies are doing with the information they have on us. We have to be skeptical about these things, not for our sakes, but for our sources. I wouldn't say my opinion of transcription services changed. I'd say that transcription services have changed my opinion of journalism. I now think that we should try to minimize the number of third-party companies we use in our reporting. That means we don't use Microsoft Word or Google Docs, we don't use Dropbox, we don't use Google Drive. We should try to minimize the possibility of third-party companies getting a hold of our sources information. And that means cutting out transcription services for good. Yeah, that was, that was super cool. I mean, what, what he said, we have to be skeptical, not just uh, for ourselves, but for our sources. I think that, that line really emphasizes this moral dilemma that, that he's nodding at. And it's something that I don't think a lot of us have really thought about before. Yeah, I mean, there are so many, there's been so much written about source protection in journalism, but I think his piece is just so well situated in our, in our times, um, which makes it so interesting. This podcast is sponsored by CWA, the country's only all-media union. They represent 6,000 media workers across the country, plus over 1,500 students in their associate member program. Their number one job is protecting quality jobs and journalism, and they believe that supporting student journalists and publications like Rise and Review is vital. You can check out their student associate membership program for information and support, and to help arrange internships and memberships at cwacanada.ca. Our podcast is also sponsored by BusinessWire, the leader in global news distribution. You can find out more information about BusinessWire services at businesswire.com. So the way forward for journalism after we're past this pandemic is going to be different for all of us. And we know, as many stories in the ROJ point out, diversity remains a problem for Canadian journalism. This year in the ROJ, we discussed the decline of arts coverage and the lack of diversity within the industry that covers the arts. We also talk about the role that grassroots organizations have played in supporting racialized journalists and access to the industry. In another story titled The Afterlife, the ROJ's visual editor, Neha Chalangi, shares the stories of several refugee journalists whose careers in journalism ended when they arrived in Canada. Indeed, upon arriving in Canada, journalists like Fred Alvarado feel safe. However, the price of finding a new, safer home is often the loss of their professional identity. Once flourishing journalists fulfilled by the stories they covered, their transition into life in Canada translates to a repression of their journalistic identities. So in short, my story is basically about exiled journalists that flee to Canada from persecution in their home countries. I go into talking about the experiences they had reporting in really dangerous and life-threatening situations most of the time, and also about how they fled to Canada and the struggles that they face here and continuing to be a journalist. It was a really interesting article to get into, mostly because of all the people that I got to speak to, all these amazing journalists from Turkey and Honduras, and uh, some of them that I didn't get to put into the story, but from Venezuela and Iran. All of them had these incredible stories to tell about 
uh, the kinds of reporting that they did and kinds of writing that they did back home. I think that there are some obvious and significant hurdles that these exiled journalists face, including things like lack of proficiency in English and um, cultural barrier, already struggling media industry in Canada, all of that. But what I found most interesting in talking to a number of these journalists was the sort of disconnect that they face with the new Canadian environment. And I think that this may be a bigger challenge than anything else. I guess you sort of have to understand that these journalists come from reporting on things like drug cartels and military coups, wars, all sorts of corruption, and countries which have very oppressive regimes. And they kind of have the stories that could put them in history books or have movies based on them. So going from that to being placed into a Canadian society is a massive, massive shift. And I'm not trying to underplay any of the issues that happen in Canada, but they're obviously very different from say the violence in Honduras or Erdogan's regime in Turkey. And I think because of this shift, many exile journalists find it really hard to develop a news eye in Canada. And many of them even said to me that they don't see news in Canada, which I thought was fascinating. And it's sort of disheartening because their knowledge can bring so much color to Canadian news stories. So for example, one of the journalists that I spoke to, Camille Maman, who was an investigative journalist from Turkey, he spent years reporting on organized crime. And it's his passion, you know, you could see it in the way his eyes lit up when he talked about these stories that he chased. And he was telling me about all the ideas that he had and all the things that he could bring to Canadian journalism. Like, for example, um, looking at gangs in Toronto and the greater Toronto area and see the inner workings of that, which is rarely covered in any media organization. So it's just an example, but I think that if Canadian news organizations can recognize this massive well of potential, it would add a completely new layer of knowledge and expertise to news stories. Yeah, I think there's this deep undervaluation of you know people who come from abroad to Canada and, and the skills and the stories that they bring to to the table. And I think that Neha's story is so timely in that sense where you know, there's been a lot of conversations about migration in the world today. There's been a lot of migration happening. And um, I think her story shines a really valuable light on um, what these individuals bring and what we can um, what we can learn from them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like Neha said, that a lot of these journalists who are coming from covering military coups and dar- drug cartels, that they don't find any news in Canada, but they bring such a breadth of knowledge that can help. Canadian newsrooms. It's interesting that they are not allowed to be a part of the story. I think the age-old question about diversity in Canadian newsrooms is who is telling these stories, you know, like whose voice are we including? And that's always been a question. And the two stories that we have, Sasora's story about diversity in arts journalism and Neha's story, they both question who are we allowing into our newsrooms and who are telling Um, these stories. And going off of that, we also had a personal story by our sales and sponsorship editor, Julia Simeone, titled Show of Hand. She discusses her own experience as the subject of a story about disability and the current state of disability coverage in Canada. After speaking with disabled journalists, scholars, and activists, I was starting to feel hopeful about the state of disability coverage. Then I talked to the star and once again experienced firsthand what it's like to try and raise disability reporting as an issue. 
My story is called Show of Hand. So the story that I originally took on for the RJ was about the landscape of disability reporting in Canada. And that's the story that I kept trying to write. And then a couple months later, the very thing that I was writing about weirdly happened to me. In November, I received the 2019 Ryerson School of Journalism Barbara Turnbull Award, which is awarded to a student in the Faculty of Communication and Design who has a physical disability. On the day of the award ceremony, I was approached by a star reporter and a cameraman, and they asked me to do an interview, and I, you know, hesitantly said yes. And a few hours later, the story went up, and my friend called me and was laughing because what they read, especially the description of my disability, was just so far off. Um, they said something along the lines that it like causes parts of my body to shake uncontrollably, um, which isn't an accurate description. When you like Google benign tremor, that's like the definition that comes up, but that's not the definition that I gave them because it's different for me. There were just a few issues in the story. You know, I kind of laughed about it for a little bit, and then I got off the phone and my stomach just, well, it sank in the moment, and then I kind of never lost that feeling. And I went over the interview in my head probably, like, I'm not even kidding, hundreds of times in the weeks and months afterwards. I was like, what did I do to make them, you know, think my disability was something that it wasn't and I but the more I kind of revisited that memory the more I was like no no like I really like insisted that it's very minor especially compared to Barbara Turnbull the person that the award was you know inspired by after many conversations with my editors and friends and stuff um I kind of you know, shifted my perspective and was like, you know, disabled people are misrepresented in the media all the time. And part of that is because most journalists just don't have the knowledge of disability. In the first part of the story, I go through speaking with disabled journalists, scholars, and activists and uh, try and develop a better understanding of what's really going on and what that landscape looks like right now and, you know, where they feel like mainstream media journalists are missing the mark along with like my personal story that's what the big first half is like and then towards the end I kind of tell the reader more about what it was like to go and you know bring up my concerns with the star and I just kind of um, changed my perspective and made me realize you know this keeps happening I have a platform to tell my story and say something needs to change I mean, I think I think Julia's first person account of this really brings the story to life. You understand the difficulties with disability reporting a little bit more and you understand the effects that it can have on the subjects that are being written about. Mm -hmm. She has written, Julia has written perhaps the most personal piece um, in the book this year. I think that'll definitely have a really resonating effect with readers and also just invite a lot of self-reflection in terms of how, how we write about um, people with uh, disabilities and how we how we see them. I mean, clearly there's more than one sort of disability. It, it's, this is not a homogenous thing, and it, I think we have a certain image in our mind of what um, it looks like, but she is here to kind of demystify that a little bit. Hey, 
definitely. I, I think it really reminds all of us here at the ROJ to examine kind of what we're taught in journalism school and, and how we can be better journalists as well. And and also, Katria, I wanted to touch on uh, another part of the magazine this year that looks at our past and the people that have improved our industry in Canada. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? And Irby, free, feel free to jump in. I also know that you've, you've written a piece as well about someone that we lost this year within Ryerson School of Journalism. Mm-hmm. So when I set out to write my editor's note, I was speaking with with Irby and we were thinking of sort of going about it collaboratively and talking about um, one student, um, one person in particular um, at the Ryerson School of Journalism, Yusra Javed, who um, passed away September last year. She was a fourth year journalism student, um, a friend to many on our masthead and a friend to many, many in general at our school. And so I decided to um, sort of acknowledge her legacy as part of my my editor's note and Irby sort of span that into a bigger piece, which perhaps you want to talk about, Irby? Mm-hmm. Um, so with Yusra, uh Javid, she pretty much encapsulated what it meant to be a journalist. And I know that Hannah talks about this and a lot of us here as we're all graduating with our bachelors and our masters. It was just very incredible at the time when we heard that Ayusha passed away that we won't be graduating with her and that she won't be going you know forward with us into the industry even though she had done so much for the industry already. Katri and I during our conversation I wanted to write this piece because Katria wrote that okay we're going to talk about Eustra we're going to dedicate our book to Eustra but I was wondering okay how do we properly address Yusra as a journalist and I was thinking okay since we're moving forward into this industry how do we carry Yusra with us and I would also add how do we bring the spirit of of Yusra into the work that we do that sort of enthusiasm that determination um that I think guides guides so many of us as well I think she really exemplified that well that's fantastic I'm really looking forward to reading that piece Katria, I just want to touch on a little bit more about uh, your specific piece for the ROJ this year, which you looked at the role of Canada's public broadcaster, the CBC, and their flagship program, The National. And numbers are actually up for our public broadcasters. So you also got some recent numbers as well, and I know you're making some adjustments. So what did they say? That's right. Uh, My story is called The Never-Ending Story, and that's because this was a story that really wouldn't sit still. It was kind of evolving right up until the print the print deadline, but a particularly interesting statistic that emerged towards the end of my reporting happened in the wake of the declaration of a pandemic on um, on March 11th. And it seems that in the week that uh, followed that declaration, viewership numbers actually went up by 61%, which is huge for the public broadcaster. So while it's not completely unprecedented for um, people to be consuming more news in times of crisis, this is a really promising sign for, for the show and how it moves forward. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And, and what have you learned from, from writing that piece and what, what was it like for you? I learned so much through writing this piece and I think that the national, I sort of examine it in the post-Mansbridge era. So Peter Mansbridge, who retired in 2017, sort of invited this big, a bit of an identity crisis for the show, I think, where they were trying to replace this personality who had held down the program for for so many years. But I think what I discovered, particularly in doing my historical research of the show, is that 
this newscast has always been evolving, always trying to sort of satisfy audience appetites and responding to changes in its broader media environment. So I put the changes over the past two years since the relaunch of the show into kind of historical perspective and just show how it's it's always been changing, experimenting, sort of innovating. Um, and I think that's that's the biggest thing I learned. And with the spotlight on doing great work here in Canada, we have our cover story by senior digital editor Emily Latimer. The Long Dark Trail. I think we were all so excited to see what the cover was going to look like for this story, and especially with this being the first RRJ cover story that focuses on the world of podcasting in Canada. So here's Emily with more about her feature. To carve out a niche in the true crime space, journalists work to unearth long-buried truths and expose wrongdoings, while taking care to provide important societal and historical context. Unanswered questions are prompting journalists to take advantage of the popular genre as a narrative device to tell complex and challenging stories. Often, they explore underreported narratives that have not easily found space in the traditional Canadian media scene. This year, I wrote um, my feature piece about the ethics of true crime podcasts. So when I first started reporting on the story, I was wondering whether or not journalists should be uh, participating in this. So I had to go back a bit and learn about the history of the true crime genre. And I spoke to a criminologist um, who told me about how, you know, this this true crime obsession would come and go in waves, kind of a reactionary wave to popular culture. So if there was something that, you know, is troubling people, they would kind of turn to true crime. So I thought that was really fascinating and did a bit more research on that. And basically, you know, back starting in 17th century England, people used to go to public executions and they would pass out these little crime pamphlets. And uh, in these crime pamphlets, there were about like 10 to 20 pages. They would put the details of the crime and information about the person. So even back then, people were interested in true crime. So in the true crime podcast genre, in my research, I found that Canadian journalists were very uh, ethical in their approach. They, they thought a lot about ethics and it meant a lot to them. A lot of them kind of took different ways into the story that would not focus on the gory details of the crime itself, but more um, frame the story in a way that reflected the victims. And also they, they took into account some things that may go unnoticed. So um, specifically societal and historical context that uh, maybe led to the the crime itself. Essentially, they are using the popularity of the true crime genre to get people to listen to stories that were largely ignored uh, by traditional media, or maybe they didn't have the, the space to tell the story. The great thing about the podcast medium is that there's space to tell stories. So people who listen to true crime, you know, they listen for like eight hours. I see it as a a very positive thing um, in the journalism space. I mean, there's such an active audience. I think 11 million Canadian adults have listened to a podcast over the last year. That's a huge amount of people. Um, So there's definitely an audience and I think it's a really positive thing. The only thing is, again, to be ethical about your approach to, to true crime podcasts. And, and I, I've been seeing in my research, you know, there's a lot of really good journalists out there who are doing a good job to make sure that they, they aren't, you know, sensationalizing or using like, um, music that kind of like plays up the drama that maybe wasn't really there.
There's a lot of stories in this issue that kind of speak to the idea that journalism is always evolving and and it's always changing and the, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stories in our issue that are kind of they're stories about one thing but they're actually stories about a greater greater issue or a greater um, societal problem or a systemic thing so I don't know I'm I'm happy to be on the cover I'm a little bit scared and I never really thought that that was what was gonna happen but um, yeah I'm excited to see it I've not I've not seen it yet when you first pitch an idea and it takes you know the whole entire school year to come together you, you think it's never gonna happen but but it does and and we're done now we're, we're nearing the end it's super exciting yeah we're looking forward to the launch of our magazine 2020 edition made in a pandemic incredible thanks so much bye Emily said it perfectly this is it's I think a lot of the themes a lot of the stories that we talk about is an ethical approach to practices that a lot of the time we don't really think twice about right I mean crime podcasts being one of them but also even Lucas's piece with um, with transcription services where it's just something that everyone widely approaches and we don't think about the ethical dilemma um, and I mean those are just two examples but I think that that's something that the stories that we're bringing forward really make us think about. It pulls back a layer, makes us really identify the problems and what it means on a wider scale. So Mitch, do you want to tell us a bit about what the cover looks like? Yeah, so I'm not going to tell you too much because we are going to have a more official reveal. But what's great about, what's great about Emily's story is that it could allude to this, um, this sort of ominous, ambiguous image that's can say a lot about the the unpredictability of journalism right now. You know, it's it's kind of we're heading towards a darker area and we don't really know where the light is, but we're moving towards it. And hopefully this will make a little bit more sense when you see the cover. <laughs> I don't know. And Urbi and Katria, why did we go with Emily's piece for the cover story here? Because we thought that Emily's piece pretty much touches upon the landscape of Canadian journalism because a lot of the true crime podcasts that Emily touches upon uh, questions the ethics of a lot of the podcasts that touch upon like missing and murdered Indigenous women, which is a very hot topic issue in journalism. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, talk about reinventing the genre. I think that Emily's just gets at that perfectly. It's just this idea of taking a genre, which has historically been a little bit problematic and then repurposing it to make it um, not only more ethical, but just make more sense for you know the moment that we're in. Yeah, exactly. It's a classic example of, of, of Canadian journalism doing great work, which is, is really cool to see. Well, this has been so much fun to talk to all of you about the magazine. And obviously, we could not include everybody's stories. There's so much more we could talk about. But it's been awesome to speak with all of you and, and hear your insight. Yeah, our pleasure. Thanks to you guys, Ash and Tanya, for coordinating this ambitious project. We're all in our closets right now. Like, this is just, this is crazy. This is not the end of the semester that any of us imagined, but we're doing it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. There is so much more that we could have touched on in this podcast. There's a lot more stories, short stories, huge features that unpack so many other topics within the Canadian journalism industry. This was just a little taste of our magazine. You'll have to order a copy to find out more. Well, this is the end. A huge thank you to the 2019-2020 RRJ masthead, our instructors Sonia Fata, Carly Lewis, and Stephen Trumper. And thank you to our listeners. It's been a pleasure hosting Pull Quotes. And of course, although we might not be in the studio today, 
A huge thank you to Angela Glover, who has taught us so much about audio recording. Wow, that's actually it for our show. Well, we won't see you next season, a new team will be here to greet you all. I'm Tanya Sarek, signing off as Pull Quotes podcast producer. And I'm Ashley Fraser, signing off as Pull Quotes podcast editor. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to pick up a copy of our magazine when it comes out soon.